Coming to you from Beaumont, this is your house call. I was down in Monroe, Louisiana doing a two-day workshop, two-day diversity workshop. The first day we talked mostly about the issues that were down there, mostly centered around black and white distinctions. And that was a town that had a history of a lot of tough racial background. And on the second morning, uh, there's a young white man in the group. He's about 30 years old and he hadn't said much. He raised his hand and he said, I have a conflict. And, you know, you're always happy as a facilitator to get a new person's hand up. I said, well, what's the conflict? And he starts talking, looking down at his lap. He says, I grew up in such and such a rural area outside of the town. He says, my daddy and my granddaddy were my heroes. Best men I ever knew taught me to fish. And then he stopped. And he looked up with tears in his eyes as they were in the clan, the Ku Klux Klan. And the whole room froze. And then he said something I'll never forget. He said it wasn't much talked about, but it wasn't much hidden either. And he went on to talk about how he was conflicted because he, as he was listening to his colleagues, some of whom were black talk, he, he, he trusted them, he believed them, he could hear their pain. But on the other hand, he knew that his grandfather and his father were good people, and he couldn't quite sync that up for himself. But there was something about him that was so honest and so vulnerable. We sat in front of the room for an hour just talking about what that was like for him and how it shaped his life. And when we finished, everybody in the room applauded. We went to lunch. And I look out, and there we are sitting in the room with box lunches, and he's not 18 inches from the strongest African-American male voice in the room, and they're connecting. And I said to myself, i got to figure out a way to replicate that. I have to figure out a way to make that happen. And that started me on the path to studying the unconscious mind and diversity. Hello and welcome to the Beaumont House Call Podcast. I'm Dr. Asha Shahjahan. Our goal is to help you and your families live smarter and healthier lives. Today we're going to be talking about implicit bias, why it's important in healthcare, and also in our everyday lives. Joining us today is Mr. Howard Ross. He's a lifelong social justice advocate and the founder of the Cook Ross Institute and also Udadra Consulting. He's considered one of the world's thought leaders on identifying and addressing unconscious bias. Howard authored the Washington Post bestseller, Everyday Bias, and also Reinventing Diversity, and another book, Our Search for Belonging. He's won numerous awards in the diversity space and is just one amazing human being. Howard, thank you so much for being here today. It's so nice to be with you again. Yeah, you know, we first met about three years ago in Maryland. I was actually taking one of your unconscious bias courses. And I distinctly remember that there were three things about you that I just could never forget. You know, one was your office space. I loved it. You had quotes from, you know, Gandhi and the Dalai Lama. And I was like, I want an office like this. This is so inspiring. Um, and then also, you were just so knowledgeable and honest in your approach to teaching um, and yet so humble. So I'm so happy to be reunited and to be with you again um, on this podcast. It's really a pleasure. So thank you. <laughs> so, you know, we're talking about implicit bias slash unconscious bias, and it's really been a hot button to topic lately. And I guess really just for our listeners, like what exactly is implicit bias? It's a great question, because I think a lot of times people misunderstand what we're trying to say as we study this topic. I mean, first of all, 
Um, you know, let's think for a minute about how the mind works. And, and we all know this. You know, you go up, uh, you, you touch a stove and you get burned by the stove. And, and for the next week or two or month or maybe even longer, anytime you approach a stove, you're hesitant. You know, you're a little bit careful. You, you, you know, you're really cautious about not, not having that same thing happen again. And, and this is the way the mind works, you know. Bias is a function of this. So what we learn is that you know, whether they're circumstances or people, we look at a new circumstance. So let's say we come across a person and I see this person. And what my brain immediately does is goes back to the hippocampus, the memory center of the brain. And it's almost like running to the file cabinet. Who does this person remind me of? And all of this happens in milliseconds and very unconsciously. Oh, that reminds me of that girl in um, middle school who you really had a crush on. And so I get a positive bump. Or maybe that reminds me of a bully in high school who beat me up. Now I get a negative bump. Or, or that reminds me of a stereotype about certain kinds of people that are supposed to be dangerous. I get, that, I get protected. So this is the way the mind functions. And the challenge with this is that often it leads us to make decisions that are not consistent with our values. So if a police officer, for example, um, is grown up with lots of images and stereotypes about African-American men and how dangerous they are, and all you need to do is to watch the news or TV shows that they might see that, and then they're confronted with somebody who seems imposing, their first tendency emotionally is to react from danger. And that, of course, can lead to horrible things happening. Of course, the same thing can happen at times to save our lives if we're in a circumstance where we can spot danger earlier. So it's important for us to know that bias, that this, this tendency to have bias is not inherently bad or inherently good. It's simply a function of the brain that could go either direction. I think our listeners may not know, Howard, that you are a white male. Um, and so I kind of wanted to just bring that oh up. Oh, my goodness. You're right. <laughs> yeah, I forgot to bring that up because I think like people listen and then they just assume that, you know, I'm Indian and maybe you're a person of color or you're a minority because it's only minorities right. that do implicit bias work or only minorities do care right. about DNI. Um, but I think it's it's fascinating to me that actually when I walked into your class, I was like, oh, uh, he's oh, a white male. Uh, do you ever get any pushback <laughs> really? or hard time uh, about the fact that you're you're a white male and you're talking about diversity well, and inclusion? It kind of goes back and forth, right? Actually, right now we're at a, we're at a place where a lot of people are saying, well, you know, white people shouldn't be doing this work. Um, I, you know, my belief is that we all need to do this work. I know as somebody for, as somebody who's Jewish. Um, you know, I, I don't want only Jewish people to be talking about anti-Semitism. I want everybody to be talking about anti-Semitism. My belief is that this is work that we all need to do. And the sooner we all understand that, the better we are. So, you know, when we talk about implicit bias or unconscious bias, you know, it's something that everybody has. Um, and yet there's this idea that, like, it's something bad. And you mentioned uh, earlier in your example that it's not always bad. In fact, it can be protective. But how do we get away from the idea that... Having training in implicit bias slash unconscious bias, I'm going to use them interchangeably, um, yes. that it's something bad or that it's a, a, you're trying to fix a personality trait and it's between good people versus bad people. A lot of the earlier training we did, uh, anti-bias training or diversity training or issues around gender or race or other kinds of things, were targeted at fixing the person who was demonstrating that behavior. And and nobody likes to be fixed. You know, actually, you know, some studies show that when people feel like you're trying to fix them, it triggers activity in the dorsal posterior insula of the brain, which is the part of the brain associated with physical pain. Um, and anybody who's in a relationship, by the way, and has tried to fix their partner knows exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> it doesn't um, work. <laughs> and so, um, 
Yeah, that's right. And so, and so unfortunately, a lot of times when people hear the term implicit bias, they expect it to be about making people wrong or shaming them. When in fact, what we say, as you know very well from the experience that we had together in that, in that uh, workshop, when we try to say to people, no, this is a fundamentally human trait. Everybody, the Dalai Lama has implicit bias. We can't help but have bias. And, um, and if we get that, we can stop demonizing each other, get away from the guilt and move more towards taking responsibility for ourselves. Yeah, I, I think that's a big point because many people, there, many people think that again, this is like a corrective uh, behavior, and and everyone has it. And I think that's something that we should all kind of acknowledge that it's just something that's part of our human nature. I'm from the state of Michigan, and recently our governor of the state of Michigan put out a mandate that all healthcare workers in the state must complete implicit bias training. Um, they're in the process of figuring out what that looks like. Um, but there's been a lot of controversy around it. You know, do you think this is a good idea or a bad idea? Um, and then what do you say to people that have resistance to this kind of training? Well, I think, I think first of all, we have to understand that the reason people will have that resistance, you know, the reason this is happening is because we're in a particular cultural zeitgeist right now where, um, where our politics and race relations are completely um, entangled with each other. You know, we have one party that's predominantly white and another party that's, you know, that's made up of a much more diverse group, you know, lots, lots and lots of people of color, as well as white folks. And, and diversity has become a political football. And so as a result of that, given our, given our, our political polarization, it's not surprising that, that this would happen. Um, uh, and it's unfortunate because, you know, as, as whenever I start a talk, um, I always say, look, I don't care what your politics are. I don't care whether you're a Democrat or Republican or liberal or conservative. This is what we all need to do. And we're going to talk about how it impacts the decisions we make in healthcare, for example. Um, you know, we know, for example, that there are hundreds and hundreds of studies, by the way, but just a couple that come to mind. We know, for example, that um, where pain medication is concerned, that, that doctors have been found to assume that black people have a higher resistance to pain than white people and, and, and subsequently to, to um, subscribe lower level, prescribe lower levels of medication um, to treat that, even to children, by the way, even in pediatric circumstances. Um, we know that <clears throat> that doctors have been shown to listen to women differently than men in terms of their symptoms or to you know, make decisions based on how seriously we take an illness based on the particular um, kind of person we're talking about. So so it's really about, you know, if you're a doctor, if you're a nurse or another practitioner, um, are you aware that um, that some of those things may impact the way you listen to your patient and therefore how you treat that patient, not to mention your own feelings of warmth towards that patient or how much you want to help them or how much you have an affinity towards them or how patient you are with their family. You know, if you have a family member that comes from a culture where they're very emotionally engaged um, versus a culture that's much more stoic. You know, how does that trigger you? So there's so many hundreds of ways this impacts the healthcare cycle. So so the work itself is valuable. That's unquestionable. And that's why, you know, I've taught at Harvard Medical School. I taught at Stanford Medical School and Johns Hopkins and most of the major medical schools in the country. The other side of it, however, is that we know that mandatory training can often be challenging because when people feel forced to do anything, they mm -hmm. tend to resist it. And so, 
The key is how do we get this information out to people in a way that they're open to listen to it? And I think oftentimes people can be heavy handed by saying, you've got to come in this room and sit and listen to this no matter what you think. And then, of course, we start with resistance and people have a bias against the training then. You know, right, it right. starts with the bias against the training. So we have to find that middle ground somehow. And sometimes it's by um, introducing the topic more subtly as part of other trainings. You know, you can introduce this part of leadership training because it has to do, by the way, with decision making at all levels. You know, there's an entire field now, as I'm sure you know, Asha, of behavioral economics, which bias impacts our economic decisions, for example. Um, and, and there are ways that we can put it into our systems and structures. There are different things, ways that we can do things differently that mitigate bias, different kinds of practices and hiring or recruiting or, or um, performance reviews or things like that. I think we just need to be a bit more sophisticated. And, and I'm, you know, I'm sure the governor has the best intention doing this, but I think we also have to be sure that it's done in a way that people are open to it, because if not, it just becomes one one more way for people to, to fall into this political divide that we're in. I love that you said that it, we need to approach it in a more creative fashion, because what I have found um, in general with uh, most of the trainings that are done, it's sort of a one and done, or it's diversity month, mm-hmm. and so we're going to talk about diversity, and it's not really in the fabric of organizations. Um, and that's part of the challenge that I have as a medical educator in, in trying to um, improve uh, medical education and patient outcomes by just really looking at where are where are the gaps in care and how do those gaps in care come back to the implicit bias that we may or may not have. And that example that you gave about the pain medication is is something that I see all the time. You know, if you have a patient who has sickle cell disease and is African-American, I've seen so many times where the patient is denied pain medication. Or there's a lot of labeling that's done in healthcare where people will call a patient a frequent flyer, meaning that they come to the emergency room a lot, or a pain seeker. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these types of things don't As- really... Assumptions of... Right. I'm sorry, I was just going to say assumptions that people are seeking drugs, you know, exactly. and that's why they're there, which happens far more often when the patient is black than when they're white, even though we know that opioid addiction is, you know, a, a major problem in the white community. Exactly. And the thing is, is that if we're not looking at these from a healthcare lens, like, for example, if we're not doing studies on how races and ethnicities and genders are treated differently, or how disease affects people differently, then we're not able to really serve our patients well. Um, And so that's something that I I like to bring up with my students. But one of the things that I also want to bring up is the fact that there is not only bias towards patients, but there's bias towards providers. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. I'm female, right? Um, So I'm a female physician, and I I walk into a room, a patient room with my residents. I've got like, you know, think of like, I don't know, house MD or ER, got like five residents with me. And we walk into a room and I'm talking to a patient. I introduce myself as Dr. Shah Jahan. I have a big DR on my badge. I'm explaining the disease process to the patient. Um, and, and, and this has happened so many times where I say, oh, so do you have any questions? And they'll say no. Or the patient will start looking towards the male in the room, regardless if he's my resident and, and is junior to me. Um, or many times as I'm walking out, I hear, that nurse was so nice, or um, an assumption that I'm not a physician um, because of my gender. Uh, so it's, it's just a, an interesting thing that happens all the time. Um, and it can impact you know, the way that we um, deliver care, the way that people receive care, et cetera. 
Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and, and, and by the way, it's not your situation is, is very common, by the way, especially for female physicians, um, which I'm sure feels really great, given all that you had to go through to go through medical school. Right. Um, and but you can also see you can also see how um, this great can create a cycle. It's, if it's not somebody who's as, you know, sort of uh, aware of this as you are. Um, at some point, that person gets more and more irritated until it happens one time and they, they blow up. You know, that grinding effect happens and then they get angry with the patient and then and then the B word comes in. And, and in fact, this is exactly what we've seen. One of the studies that was done at the Veterans Administration Hospital, they tracked male and female physicians who were going into coding circumstances. And, you know, as you know, and I'm sure most of the people who are listening know that that's a situation where the doctor takes over the room. It's not a time for consensus leadership. You know, mm-hmm. the doctor comes in, you do this, that, you do this, you do this, you do this. I mean, you're just saving a life, right? Um, well, what they did was they tracked what happened to male and female physicians. And they found when the male doctors went into that circumstance, um, that um, they were very, they were celebrated for, you know, the job that they did, got a lot of pats on the back and they felt really good about themselves afterwards. Um, you know, I remember I just flashed to an early scene from the show uh, ER when, um, when, uh, what was it, Dr. Benton, I think the African-American doctor walks out of the room and does this, like, yes, and he does a punch forward, like, yes, like a Tiger Woods kind of a celebration <laughs> yeah. punch, you know? And then, but when female doctors did it, um, not only were they called the B word, for the way they behave. And in fact, the title of the academic study, if anybody wants to look that up, is Witchy with the Bee. Um, but, um, but also that the, that the female doctors were so used to being judged that way that they went around and apologized for their behavior. In other words, they apologized for how they had to have to save somebody's life. And it shows how insidious it is, you know, how it gets built into the system. And it doesn't matter that you're brilliant and that you've gone through this and you're working for a great institution and you've got your white coat on and all that stuff. It doesn't matter. These biases are underneath that surface, like I said, rationalizing rather than rational. Yeah. And it can also be very detrimental in in team building. Like uh, there's been many times where I've been in committee meetings. So as, as a female physician, and then there are other male physicians in the room. And it always happens when they're going around the room, they say, this is Dr. So-and-so and Dr. So-and-so. When it comes to me, they say, this is Asha. And then they go to Dr. So-and-so and Dr. So-and-so. And I never, and I never say anything because I'm like, yeah, I don't mind being called by my first name. But I remember after one meeting, um, a person came up to me and said, so exactly what is your role in, and why are you in this meeting? Right. Because they didn't understand that I was also a physician that was at the table because uh, I wasn't addressed that way like my male colleagues were. So I, I think the thing is, is that this happens um, not only in gender roles, not only with race and ethnicity, it happens even with different age groups. And a lot of times people think that diversity and inclusion or implicit bias work is really only about race and ethnicity. But it's about so much more than that. It includes that, of course, which is very important, but it encompasses so much more. Yeah, I mean, in the context of what we're talking about, for example, one of the studies that um, that we found uh, from the Bloomberg School of Public Health uh, at Johns Hopkins University, they found that, um, that patients uh, react differently to doctors because of their weight. That doctors who are who are you know overweight um, are listened to less, they're valued less, that people follow up less on their instructions, um, et cetera. And by the way, doctors do the same to patients. Doctors also have bias against patients who are overweight and, and follow up with less with them and and take less time with them and, and tend to believe less what they say. So um, you know, weight. I, mean, I I promise you, Asha, I could give you and I, when we were together, I think we went through this, but. I could give you an example from almost any identity, any aspect of human identity you want to name. 
Um, I could give you an example of how a bias shows up. Even things like hand dominance, right hand and left hand. You know, mm. the Max Planck Institute for Neurolinguistics in the Netherlands, they did a study where they found that people tend to um, favor people who are on the, the same side as their hand dominant. So, for example, if I'm interviewing two people and I'm right-handed and somebody sits in the chair to the right of me and the other person sits in the chair to the left of me, the person to the right of me has about a 3% greater chance of being hired just because they sat in that chair. It just shows oh how gosh. ridiculous this stuff is. You know? <laughs> well, you know? well, here's my question. We know that everyone has bias. We've you know, kind of listed a couple of examples of how it occurs. But like, how, how can we really interrupt bias when these microaggressions are happening? Like, for I'll use the same example of, of me constantly being um, not called the physician or sort of being diminished, um, you know, constantly over and over again. And you did mention that there is a point where someone might blow up. And I think there is um, a video that I've seen. Um, it's on YouTube that where it says microaggressions are like mosquitoes. Um, and it's like if you get bit every once in a while, it's not really a big deal. You might itch a little bit. But if you get bit all day long, um, it can be quite irritating. And so how can we interrupt bias? Um, and what are some effective ways to do that? Yeah, one of my friends, just to pick up on the news, like I said, one of my good friends, Julianne Malveau, who's a political commentator, likes to say that it's a grinding effect. You know, the little, the micro behaviors grind exceedingly slow. And at some point, sometimes they do blow up. Well, there are a number of things that we find. The first, interestingly enough, and the most important, is to acknowledge we have them. Because once we acknowledge that biases are running our lives, you know, all day long, every day, um, then we will have a tendency to look for them. We'll have a tendency to be less defensive about the notion that we have them. And because of that, we'll have a tendency to become more aware of them and therefore have more more ability to impact them. There's a wonderful quote from the great psychologist, uh, Viktor Frankl, who said that freedom is the pause between stimulus and response. Hmm. You know, that at that moment where we feel that stimulus, but before we automatically respond, we say, wait a second, you know, what's making me respond here? That we have a choice. So anybody, for example, who has children, anybody who works and has children has had that moment where you come home from work, you've had a hard day, you Go in the door and your child, let's say three or four years old, runs out. And all you want is a glass of wine, the newspaper, to be left alone. It's been that kind of a day, you know. Yeah. Um, your child comes up, mommy, your daddy, whatever it is, you know. And, and at that moment, something kicks in and your, you know, your slow brain kicks in. It says, wait a second. I know you've had a bad day, but this is your baby, you know. So, so put that aside and be mommy or be daddy. And, and, and so in that moment, you have a choice about it. You don't just push your kid aside and go to your chair and grab the newspaper. You become mommy or daddy. Um, so the one thing we know, the very first thing that's the most important is to acknowledge that we have bias. You do, I do, we all do. It's just something, you know, it's just something that's part of ourselves and to be willing to look for our biases. Um, and then the second is in order to do that, to, to begin to turn inside. Um, the metaphor I like to use comes from a dear friend of mine, Michael Schieser, um, is to turn a flashlight on ourselves, to begin to watch ourselves in action. So if we know the biases are there, we slow down a little bit, use the term pause. I like to encourage people to use that word to take a bit of a pause and to and to just to, to slow ourselves down and say, okay, what's going on here? How is this affecting me? Um, uh, where is this decision coming from? Where is this reaction coming from? To notice, I'm having a strong reaction to this person, um, either positive or negative. So let's say you're doing an interview. You've got two people you've got to interview. You know, John comes in in the morning. You're fresh, you know, nine o'clock, fresh at the... Uh, at the, uh, in the office, he sits down and you have this sense, something about this guy I like, you know, it's not even a thought, it's more of a feeling. And 
you know, and we know, of course, even that thought is ludicrous because you only know them for five seconds. So clearly, you're, he's reminding you of somebody. It's a classic case of projection. You know, maybe he reminds you of a guy who you knew when you were a kid who you really liked. You know, so you ask him the first question of the interview, and he hems and haws a little bit because he's a little nervous. And without even thinking about it, just out of that sense of affinity and that feeling of liking him, you say, John, look, I know it's an interview. I know you're a little nervous. Take a breath. You know, let me ask the question again. He gets a second chance, right? The interview mm-hmm. goes great. Mm-hmm. Six hours later, somebody comes in. You've been running around like a crazy person, running from ward to ward, dealing with patients, dealing with emergencies. All right, you got to get this interview done. You sit down. You ask that person. Let's call her Sally. You know, you ask Sally the first question in the interview, and uh, and she hems and haws a little bit. And this time, you just sit there with your arms crossed, or even worse, you make a quick glance at your watch that she's not supposed to see, but she does, of course. You know, and now she's sweating bullets, and the interview goes two completely different directions. And and you know, you leave that interview not even realizing that you had anything to do with it, so contributing to it. So so learning to watch our own behavior, learning to watch our own thoughts and feelings to allow that stuff to surface is incredibly important. And then and then the third thing is um, to to um, that we found is really helpful is when you do know that you have a bias, when you're willing to admit to yourself that these are certain people who are not comfortable with, or let's say, you know, a lot of people have experienced this recently around people who are brown skin, um, um, either Middle Eastern or Asian, because a lot of people don't know the difference between Indian people and Muslim people from Pakistan or from, or from the Middle East, you know, mm-hmm. unfortunately, I know my, my, um, my daughter-in-law is Indian, and um, her mother and father, uh, after 9-11, had all kinds of things thrown on their lawn and stuff because people assumed they were Muslim, even though they weren't. Right. Um, but I have to tell you about this. You know, you know all the uh, I've been, I've been through that myself. So, I'm sure you have. And and so, you know, so when, when we have times like this, of course, it's also especially important for us to retrain our minds if we know that we have a bias. But just, for example, having pictures up of, you mentioned my office, and, and in my office, if you remember, I had literally dozens of pictures, the heroes and sheroes that represented different cultures and different people from different parts of the world, different racial, cultural, and ethnic groups, because it was a way to train my mind subtly and, and just sort of you know, by osmosis virtually um, by being in the environment and subliminally to, that there are quality people from all different groups. And so if you remind yourself of that in a very conscious way, that can also try to help balance out some of our, our biases. And that's why things like Black History Month and Pride Month and uh, Women's History Month and you know Latino Heritage Month, things like this are still really important because they help our brains remember all the positive things that some of the cultures that we associate with negative biases contribute. You know, that leads me to my next question about um, kind of divisiveness. So there's been some pushback about, like, I love the way that you like to celebrate different cultures and people from around the world. And I think it makes you more aware as a person. And you learn something new all the time from different cultures. But there's a pushback also Mm -hmm. that um, having these, um, you know, employee resource groups, or having specific holidays, um, are making people more divisive. And in fact, there's also been some talk about uh, the word privilege. And it's become such a sensitive topic. And it's, it's like when you talk about privilege, it's something that is kind of ingrained in, um, in training because you need to understand where and when you have privilege. But it's become a divisive term. What do you say to people who think that having um, employee resource resource groups for um, certain ethnicities or genders or, or races are divisive. 
Well, I think I think there are a couple things about this. I think, that, first of all, I think in any of the things we're talking about, there's the concept itself, and then there's how the concept is carried out. I mean, you know, that like we talked about earlier. I mean, you know, there's there's for example, there's good implicit associate implicit bias training or unconscious bias training, and there's poor quality training. And there, you know, so I think you know what I'm going to talk about is is you know is how it's done well. I mean, I think where employee resource groups are concerned, you know, employee resource groups largely started many years ago now um, as a place for people to come where they could feel, you know, if you were one of the only women in your organization or in your team, if you got together with the other women throughout the organization, you felt a sense of support, you found a sense of kinship, you didn't feel quite so alone. It's a little bit like um, this new concept that that many uh, major universities are working on now, the posse, if you're familiar with the posse approach, they call it, when you're bringing in young students of color who are usually pretty isolated, you bring in a group of them at the same time and, and they create a community to create, quote, a posse that supports each other, you know? So so they, that was the original idea. And, and over time, as, as we move from this notion of affinity groups to resource groups, we realized that, gee, this could be really helpful, um, you know, because if we're trying to recruit let's say more African-Americans or if we're dealing with an African-American community issue, let's say near your hospital, you've got an African-American community, you're having trouble with that community, trying to communicate effectively or with relationships with that community. I did a lot of work in Flint, for example, and that was a big issue mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Um, then, then coming to your African-American employees and saying, can y'all take a look at this and see what they might be doing wrong? Because maybe you'll see something I don't see as a white guy. Um, that could be really helpful. You know, um, the challenge is, of course, if it stays that way, then it can reinforce that separation. So what a lot of organizations um, that I'm working with are doing, and I'm encouraging them to try to do, is to formulate some of these employee resource groups around the issue rather than the individual identity. So for example, rather than having a women's resource group, have a gender equity resource group that men and women who are committed to gender equity can come together in. And some of the times during those meetings, one of my clients, for example, has a regular pattern of doing this. They get together, I think, two and a half or three hours once a month for this group. And the first hour, men are in one room and women are in an adjacent room. And they each talk about what their experience is like. Then they come back together again. They share what their experiences have been. And then collectively together, they come up with ideas of how to move forward and good suggestions for leadership and the like. And, and, and my feeling is that that approach really gets the best of the boat. It, it's oriented towards bringing us together, but it also recognizes the fact that women and men, in that particular case, um, have unique and distinct experiences. Um, so we build we build an allyship, but we don't pretend like we're all having the same experience because that's just not honest. We know that, as you just described with your experience as a woman, that's a different experience that I have as a man, and you should be able to talk about that and process that. Um, and it's sometimes only it's sometimes the best way to do that is with other women. Now the problem with this is oftentimes people in the dominant group um, feel challenged by this, um, and um, and uh, what happens with the dominant group is you say, well, you know, how come you know there's a there's a uh, the African American employee resource group and there's a women's resource group and there's nothing for us white guys. Well, the reason is of course because there there always have been white male resource groups. They've been called leadership teams. Or, you know, yeah. I mean, that, that the culture is built around white male norms. The culture is general. And that's not, and again, that's, that's not demonizing anybody. That's just the reality is that, that most organizational cultures are built around white male role, role models of behavior and historically have been dominated by white male behavior and, and in, in the way things are done. And so, and so because they're in a dominant group, the normative system is addressing their issues. This is to say, 
you know, we, we have to create some space for other people to get that. It's a little bit like when people say, how come there's not a white history month? Mm-hmm. And I say, you know, I, I was a history major and every book I read was white history when I was going to school. You know, cause I'm over 70 years old, as you know, when I was going to school, every book was white history. And that's all there was because there were almost no mentions of anybody else. I mean, it was shocking to me, um, not surprising, but nonetheless shocking. Um, for example, when the whole, uh, uh, controversy recently happened around the Tulsa, uh, President Trump's Tulsa rally, and and that he had chosen Tulsa to have it there, given the Tulsa massacre in 1921. How few Americans knew about the Tulsa massacre? Less than 30 percent. And a lot of those were because of the Watchmen TV series. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, so there's so much of history that's been untold. And this is when, you know, in terms of President Trump's recent decision to clamp down on diversity training. This is what people don't understand is that, you know, is that we're not suggesting, you know, America is evil, but we're suggesting we need to tell the truth about our history that as, as the great historian Santiana said, those who don't, don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. You know, if you look at, for example, what the Germans have done, you know, they don't, they don't paper over the Holocaust. They don't pretend it didn't happen. They actually have curriculum all through schools. They talk about it publicly. Then they, they learn from it so that it will never happen again. And I think similarly, we know that there's been 400 years of history of this, this narrative of racial difference in the United States that we need to address and be honest about if we're going to create a future that really is truly equitable for everybody. Howard, it's been such a pleasure to learn from you yet again. And um, I'm definitely going to be picking up the new edition of your book, Everyday Bias. And um, you know, you have other resources as well for people who maybe are interested in learning more ways on how to interrupt bias or how to integrate um, more of diversity and inclusion strategies in their business. Um, can you name some of those resources for us? Sure. Well, the easiest the easiest way to reach me is um, is through one of two websites, either howardjross.com or udarta u d a r t a dot com. And uh, if people go to those those uh, those websites, and they can get hold of me, and it's a pretty good list of the things we do and the resources the resources that are there. And and it's just so delightful being with you. And you know, we should do it again sometime. Absolutely. And just for our listeners, Udarta means what does that mean, and in what language is that? It, it, it's a, it's the a Hindi word for generosity. Yeah, Hindi word for generosity. Generosity yeah. and compassion. And I think you um, really yes, en- that's right. en- encompass. Uh, both of those um, characteristics. So thank you again, Howard. Oh, that's so kind of you. Don't forget, podcast listeners, we're working on future Beaumont House Call podcasts, and you can find those on our website. Also, you can send along any questions or suggestions that you have to podcast at beaumont.org. In the future, we'll be answering our mailbag. Till the next time, thanks for joining us on the Beaumont House Call. We leave you today with this healthy thought. We heard a lot about bias. Everyone has it. I have it. You have it. There's no blame or shame on any one individual when it comes to implicit bias training. The learning curve is different for everyone. Our thoughts are based on the experiences that we've had as we've grown up. Investing in implicit bias can improve your business, your ability to connect with others, and your family relationships. Finding common ground can open your eyes to see a picture more clearly. We all have bias that shapes us. It's all around us in our everyday lives. As a doctor, I know I have bias, but tuning into the bias that I have can help me to be a better doctor, can help improve patient outcomes, and help patients live healthier lives. Continue your journey to living a smarter, healthier life 
Visit Beaumont.org podcast to access information and resources related to today's podcast.